You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. What is that, midnight? St. Matthews. You Catholic? What's from New York? Once. You still go to mass? Stop now, Red. Stop. Stop digging. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You can know by now that men in the Bugatti. He's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Do whatever that you like, do whatever, baby, cause I, oh, I don't care, yeah, yeah, it's The Marvel Universe and the American imagination are merging to a remarkable degree. Maybe it's the association with the Disney Empire. Maybe Stan Lee was some kind of prophet all this time. Who knows? At any rate, from print to cartoons to cinema and now streaming on your whatever, Marvel's characters and stories are ubiquitous. So it's about time we here at the Sectarian Review chimed in. Now, no corner of Marvel's universe fits what we do better than the Hell's Kitchen stories. Daredevil, the blind ninja lawyer, and Jessica Jones, the feminist product of superhuman experimentation, are the company's first forays into FCC-free zone of Netflix productions. And let me say from the outset that they're pretty spectacular. Um, the action, the plotting, the character, and the character development, excuse me, of both these franchises are just stellar. So they have an amazing entertainment value. But each franchise works on a fascinating philosophical and even theological level as well. And that's what that's where I'll introduce you uh, to my partner for this show. Um, this show is his idea, uh, Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist Podcast. Nathan, how's it going? Hey, I'm doing all right. Uh, this is actually one of two crossover shows I'm going to be doing this summer. I've been invited on the Christian Feminist podcast to do an episode on the Ghostbusters reboot. So I, I, I will be the only one who can say I've been on every Ghostbuster show on the Christian Humanist Radio <laughs> Network. I am looking forward to that, that movie, actually. There was recently on Craigslist in Pittsburgh, and you saw this, I posted it on Facebook, um, someone was selling an old firehouse <laughs> for, for like $33,000 on Craigslist. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wanted that so bad. And you said we could buy it and make it the Christian Humanist Headquarters or something. <laughs> Guys, the poll still works. <laughs> oh my gosh, that, that's a dream of mine. I, if I had the cash, I would totally buy that place. So, um, well, it's great to hear your voice I, 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 again. I hear a Kickstarter coming in. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do one of those Patreon things, fundraising for our firehouse in Pittsburgh. Um, <laughs> Nathan, it's great to hear your voice again. How's things in Georgia? Nathan, I should say, if you don't know him, is Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are things down there? It's going pretty well. I am, uh, for the first time in my career, teaching a philosophy class online this summer. And I had my apprehensions, but it's turning out to be a whole lot of fun. We're reading... uh, 
Friedrich Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, and of course, uh, get out your uh, Christian humanist bingo cards. Uh, <laughs> Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue together, and just being able to get you know paragraphs and paragraphs a couple times a week from every student in the class. I mean, some really good conversations going on. So I, my. Uh, continuing battle with michael farmer over uh, online education will no doubt continue because i'm having too much fun for me to call this evil <laughs> you really need a just an episode dedicated to that topic honestly uh, uh we actually did one about five or six years ago okay. uh, listeners can go back into the christian humanist archives none of it's behind a paywall because frankly i mean who would pay <laughs> uh but <laughs> uh if you go back we did we actually did an episode on online education um, man, that's got to be pre-MOOC, though. I, I would think that it needs updated. Uh, there's got to be so much more development in the last five years. Like, I think you can oh, have a, yeah, a totally new conversation. Uh, I, I don't think I, I... You know, Michael and I had our uh, Eucharist fight a while ago. I don't, I'm not sure if I want to get another Battle Royale going. <laughs> that was so much fun to listen to, though. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. As And I am, as always, Danny Anderson, uh, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Pennsylvania. Uh, let me thank Thank you uh, for downloading another episode of Sectarian Review, and I hope you enjoy what we do here. Um, before we begin, though, Nathan, uh, let me make another pitch for the Wild Goose Festival. Uh, this show, along with the Christian Feminist Podcast, has been invited to host a live show there. Um, you can find out more about Wild Goose at wildgoose.org. I've never been, but it looks like a pretty cool thing. Uh, and even cooler, I think, is they're giving our listeners a big 25% discount um, by using the promo code GooseCast. 2016 upon checkout uh, i'd love to meet some of you there so please if you uh please think about popping down to hot springs north carolina july 7th through 10th and also remember your intrepid host has a massive inferiority complex and is paralyzed with fear about sharing the stage with such big shows as homebrewed christianity the literatist podcast among many others so uh please pitch me some good ideas for what you'd like me to, uh, to do down there and give me all the nice prayers and good karma you can spare um, some listener has already suggested the topic of hipness, and that is actually what I'm going to do. I've gotten some uh, an interview lined up for that, and, and um, I'm feeling a little better than I had when I wrote this. But I, I could always use more support, so give me more ideas. Um, we have a website and a Facebook page and a Twitter account and a Gmail where you can catch us. Uh, and also, if you spread the good word about the show, uh, that would be great, too. Um, I do have, before we get to the show proper, a couple of responses from listeners. Um, this one came on the website itself, sectarianreviewpodcast.weebly.com, um, and it was from Chris E., um, and it was a response to our uh, Seven Mountain Dominion two-part series that has just been um, uploaded here recently uh and chris says not sure whether to follow up on episode 12 on this thread or wait till the next post um that's probably superfluous information uh a couple of groups that you don't see that don't seem to have crossed your radar christian reconstructionism whose founder rush dooney has indirectly influenced a lot of seven mountain think thinkers related to this some post-millennials like doug wilson who would be uh, who would uh, follow a de facto seven mountain path because of the way they seek to affect culture secondly uh, the connection with the new apostolic reformation movement and people like rick joiner 
And Nathan, do you know anything about those folks or this topic? Um, I have heard of the Reconstructionists. Uh, the other group I've never even heard of, but uh, it's interesting. Uh, that episode, I'm actually, as we record, about halfway through the second part of it, and I, I think it's interesting that you started out, you know, talking about a very definite. Um, idea with a very definite catchphrase and it sort of expanded out into you know people who have affinities with it um, so I, I definitely think that you know as you go on that topic has not been exhausted by any means because uh, as I think you noted uh, you know just an episode on the Pharaoh Dave Ramsey might be <laughs> worth taking on uh, although I, I found that online I mean I can talk bad about the Pope the President I can talk bad about the Georgia Bulldogs for all I care uh, but the instant I say anything about Dave Ramsey I get six or seven people saying what's your problem with him <laughs> <laughs> yes um, I, you're right I mean, him particularly actually I, I do feel like this show is largely uh, I think I mean I'm writing up a like a we hear one retrospective for the show and I'm trying to mm-hmm. find connections and it's apparent to me that what you're talking about is I mean I'm, I'm not saying that we weren't saying that the folks that we were specifically talking about Dave Ramsey for example identify it as the seven mountain business right but right. what they betray is the same kind of um, unquestioning lust for power in the culture uh, and, and that's actually that sort of making apparent what is hidden uh, in within Christian kind of culture seems to be a big issue with what we're dealing with and so yeah I think that that topic that may have been just the tip of an iceberg um, particularly mm-hmm. since we kind of took it kind of metaphorically um, and the last thing Chris says is an interesting one um, uh, finally would it be possible to make your Facebook group closed. Um, the problem with leaving it open is it's harder to be speculative as you then have to answer to your even more conservative Christian friends with a smiley face after that. Um, so <laughs> I, I love our Facebook page and I love that people like respond to it. I, I, I hate to make it closed. We do have a closed discussion group for the people who contribute. And I told Chris and, uh, and I'll just send this out to anybody else. If you are interested in such a thing, send us a message on the show and and uh if there are enough people maybe we can make a separate closed group um um or if 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 our normal sort of contributor closed group gets overrun by by fans um that we can sort of separate that out but yeah um i'd be glad to include you into the sort of back channel dialogue if you want to be if you want to experience (laughs) that it's really no problem for me actually i'm a little confused as to why anyone would want that but um but uh i'm very flattered as well chris so please do um take me up on that and send a a message to the regular Facebook page and I'll send you a link or let you show you how to request um, access to that. That should be pretty easy. Um, And finally, um, through Twitter, I got a, a direct message from a former student of mine uh, down in Georgia, actually, uh, Evan James. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Evan? Uh, so he would love to hear a podcast on Tarantino movie philosophies. Uh, certainly would bring Gilmore back for that if that happens. Um, <laughs> anime is an industry. I have nothing I have nothing about that personally. Well, I got nothing there either. I would love if you are interested in anime, let me know and we could bring you on and, and you can take the lead on that. And why every Christian song on the radio has to start with two verses that depress you before they get to the uplifting parts. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
that might be a little narrow, but <laughs> that's that's a little technical. But it has something to do with marketing, though, which is also another kind of uh, future. Oh episode yeah, yeah, I, and that would certainly be a worthwhile pursuit. Yeah, I definitely have an episode in mind about uh, selling things to Christians, like uh, using the mm-hmm. church as a, a market for commerce is a is a topic that I'm very now, Danny. I can't in. remember. Were you on our episode about uh, Rodney Clapp's essay, "Why the Devil Take Visa"? Uh, no. Okay, all right, all right. That That's a fun little essay. Sometimes it is behind uh, Christianity Today's firewall, which is its own little irony, I realize. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it's not. So uh, that that's one I definitely recommend that you, you know, have whoever comes on take a look at, because I think uh, selling things to Christian is something that Clapp was concerned with, you know, whatever it was 20 years ago now. Um, so I think some of the points still hold. I will definitely look that up. Um, that that is like becoming an obsession of mine, actually. Um, and Evan concludes this by saying, "Knowing you, you'll probably find a way to fit all those into one." Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, I don't think we're going to fit it into one, Evan. Let me uh, let me just kind of say that. But those are great ideas. I love the feedback, everybody. Just keep it coming, um, and we will keep reading it on the air. I did promise, actually. I think in the last episode to name new. Facebook followers. Um, who did we get in the last week? Um, we have in the last week since my announcement about our 100th follower, um, Joshua McCroskey and Luke T. Harrington has uh, has followed the Facebook page. So thanks, guys. Uh, and if you'd like a shout out, just like the Facebook page. It's as simple as that. <laughs> um, well, let's get back to the reason you downloaded the episode now. I love talking to Gilmore, and we could just chat for hours for all. Uh, and it would, I would be pleased, but you might not be. So Yeah, it wouldn't uh, be good radio. <laughs> it would be bad radio. Um, Nathan, this was your idea. What are some big reasons that you think these shows are worth talking about? When Marvel first of all got bought out by Disney and then second of all when it started to make the move towards Netflix it really started to explore some of the possibilities of first of all the long series of movies and then with Netflix the television series as potential venues for superheroes so I think the pitfall that a lot of movies fell into in the past is that every time you started a superhero franchise or rebooted one to use the the term of style uh you had to dedicate half of your movie to an origin story and then really you were down to one big fight scene and then you were done what daredevil started to do uh was reveal the backstory and the origin story gradually as the series moved on because it had 14 hours to work with and so you actually got to do some novelistic things that comic books, of course, have been doing for decades, but superhero movies really hadn't gotten into because they just didn't have the time to do it. So one of the things that's cool about Daredevil and Jessica Jones uh, and hopefully the new Luke Cage series and Iron Fist and all these groovy properties coming in Netflix is that they actually have time to do what comic books do so well, which is to develop a vigilante story or a super superhero story uh not in the course of a two and a half hour movie but over the course of 14 hours 20 hours over the course of two or three television seasons so that you really get something like a cross between the avengers movie which i think is you know a a really the one of the high points of superhero movies although i think captain america civil war is even a little bit better uh and then on the other hand something like the wire 
where you've got a lot of complex characters, you've got a lot of ambiguous storylines that are playing in. Uh, you don't have to rely on a plot turn. You can really let a character develop and you can take your time doing so because you have the time to do so. The other reason that I think these things are worth talking about as you set them alongside the Avengers universe and the Guardians of the Galaxy universe is that these are certainly superheroes. They certainly have superpowers. Uh, Jessica Jones is super strong. Luke Cage is super strong and he's bulletproof. Uh, Daredevil has, you know, crazy, funky radar vision. <laughs> um, but as far as the scale of their stories go, these are stories that don't take place on a global scale or even in the, the whole of New York City, but they are in a neighborhood. Uh, and so the kinds of plot lines you explore there are going to be different kinds of plot lines. And as you noted in the opening, Danny, because we are out of the realm of movie ratings and we are out of the realm of uh, television restrictions, uh, they can do some things that I mean a lot of folks that I've, I've seen have commented on the extreme violence of the two series and they're absolutely right about that um, but they can take on themes like sexual assault they can take on themes that you know really you can't take on uh, in a movie setting without it becoming an R-rated movie and therefore closed off from the blockbuster category, right? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, as as evangelicals often tell me, the only R-rated movie to make scads and scads of megabucks was The Passion of the Christ or, you know, Jesus Chainsaw Massacre, depending <laughs> on what you call it. Uh, so, I mean, it, with Daredevil and Jessica Jones, because they're not bound by the need to be a blockbuster, they can really do some interesting things. Again, taking on thematic elements and taking on uh, character development that you couldn't do in those other movies. I mean, you were interested, obviously, when I suggested it. You said we got to record this. So, I mean, what draws you to Daredevil and Jessica Jones? A lot of what you just said. And by the way, you know that the, you've heard about the Passion of the Christ sequel that's in the works. Oh no! Um, <laughs> is, is there a punchline here? No, there's not a punchline. This okay. is a, this is a legitimate thing. Apparently, he's thinking about making right. a sequel to this. I have no idea. I, I think a buddy cop movie would be the way to uh, take yeah, this. Yeah, I'm like, is it going to be called Good Friday? the 13th or what I, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus jeans oh that's great that's beautiful um, but no for much of what you just said as well and earlier I mean earlier we did a show on anti-heroes and we talked a lot about the sort of so-called golden age of television and I yeah. think for whatever reason Marvel realized it with Daredevil this was the perfect venue to take advantage of of that sort of new that uh, uh, emergent form in, of mm -hmm. of storytelling, and the fact that you can take your time and not I mean and even with Daredevil the, they don't even have much of an origin story they don't dedicate a whole episode to an origin story really <laughs> you no, know no, and, they and, reveal and so, it a couple minutes at a time over the whole season yeah and, and so like they really take their time to help you uh, to make you sort of care about the people that all of these things are happening to and not just showing you the events that are happening and so mm -hmm. for me there's a real deep kind of personal engagement that you get with these characters um, now I never um, followed either comic book so I came into this completely 
um, unaware of what was uh, what had been canonical within these two um, characters stories mm-hmm. and yet I'm totally enraptured <laughs> with their stories because mm-hmm. it, it's so um, I, I don't know what it's it's so like real and a lot of it again like you say it's it's grounded in a real place and the classical Marvel comic book I mean that was always the big difference between Marvel and DC for me on the level of story DC took place in Metropolis and Gotham City these sort of mythological places right and they, right. they work much more on the, the level of Greek mythology whereas Marvel took place in Queens and in all these other places yeah, that are actually yeah. real and, and, and I think that Marvel is leveraging that really well here Right. And have you seen uh, Captain America Civil War yet? I have not seen Civil War yet. Okay. I I won't do any plot spoilers, but there is a moment where uh, Captain America has a scene with Spider-Man. And, uh, I mean, it's just a fun little moment because Captain America says to Spider-Man, you've got heart, kid. Where are you from? And he says, uh, Queens, where are you from? And he says, Brooklyn. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's just that fun little exchange, you know. Exactly, right? And so, yeah, and I think that the stories take advantage of that that realness uh, in a lot of ways. And, and the fact that, the uh, thing that draws me to it, and we'll talk about this, is they are not afraid to be philosophical and um, theological. Uh, I mean, yeah. much of, I'm almost, infrequently in the first season, Daredevil goes to his priest for advice about, about things. And it's a really interesting um, theological conversation every time well it's interesting because in season two he really becomes priest to frank castle the punisher yes so i mean you know the priest isn't as prominent on the screen but his influence is still there because daredevil becomes to a large extent the confessor to the punisher and you know i mean that that's a character as well who comes in in season two of daredevil and by the way if you haven't figured it out yet we're going to spoil with impunity oh yes uh so (laughs) if you want to watch these series that are on netflix save this to your phone go watch them not with kids in the room uh and then come back or if you want to you know hear some things to look for as you're watching them keep listening but understand we're going to talk about how stuff ends yeah yeah i mean it's impossible to really um talk about these shows without doing that and they've been out long enough i think that's fair i think most people who oh, yeah, download yeah. this will probably have already they're downloading this because they've actually seen the shows right um, right and, and and thought that they were amazing um yeah um absolutely um, well, I, I really don't know where to begin. These are three, two shows we're talking about in three seasons. And so mm-hmm. finding a coherent line of questioning is difficult <laughs> for me, right? And so I have some guiding questions, but this conversation can go wherever it needs to go. Oh, yeah. And, and maybe anachronistically, I'm actually interested in beginning uh, my first question about the villain in, in Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. the, the main villain in Daredevil um, is uh, Wilson Fisk, who finally uses the name King pin in the second season um, yes. <laughs> but uh, but we know him from the comics as kingpin and he's played just fantastically by vincent d'onofrio um well my favorite thing about daredevil is kingpin then um so mm-hmm. why is he so compelling and and likewise his counterpart um the purple man uh in uh kill Kilgrave in uh, jessica jones yes. another incredibly compelling villain in, even mm-hmm. na- i mean even worse than kingpin though Kilgrave is um yeah how does the main nemesis in these two series like function like like why do they add so much to the um to the the hero's story well I'll start with uh Wilson Fisk, I'll call him that because he doesn't get called Kingpin, as you know, till season two. 
First of all, uh, to go back to our earlier conversation, one of the cool things about Wilson Fisk is you don't even know he exists until several episodes into the series. Hmm. Uh, you see the work of what you find out later are his underlings. Uh, there's definitely a criminal organization going on. But when Wilson Fisk himself first appears, you already know that he's got a web that stretches all over Hell's Kitchen. Uh, so part of his appeal is his mystery the other part of his appeal is again he is a villain who himself has an origin story who again gets revealed gradually bit by bit over the course of season one and what we end up finding out about Wilson Fisk is that depending on how you narrate the story and we're going to be talking about this a fair bit this episode uh, he is either Plato's vision of the tyrant. He's someone who emerges into a story where there is no order, there is no uh, protection for the weak, and so he becomes the brutal killer uh, who does so for the sake of the people who surround him. Mm. And he will destroy anyone who steps in the way of, or not really who steps in the way of, because he doesn't really have ambition so much as he has a drive to protect yeah uh so you know uh his lover if anyone you know even threatens her he's going to get violent yeah uh his neighborhood he thinks that it's gone to hell and so he will destroy anyone who gets in the way of his plan to make it better so in one sense i mean he is the platonic tyrant on the other hand uh if you tell this story from a more nietzschean point of view uh he is in a in a real way, the Ubermensch, right? Uh, he is surrounded by not only police and not only vigilantes like Daredevil, but also by other criminals uh, who have a certain idea of what it means to be organized crime and they won't step beyond it. And one of the things that gets him in trouble, but ultimately he overcomes because he's a monster, uh, is their desire to keep things bounded within sort of your standard protection racket you know drugs and prostitution and so on and so forth criminal ring he wants to go further make it a legitimate business take over the mayor's office you know do all sorts of things that um really step beyond that so he's interesting because you can really narrate him from a a number of different perspectives uh from his own point of view all he wants to do is protect that which is close to him yeah. uh, but you know from the point of view of those around him uh, he doesn't unwillingly destroy his enemies I mean he is a brutal if not sadistic killer I mean he will commit acts of violence without hesitation so there is a scene know, with a there's a scene with a car door that um, specifically oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that specifically illustrates what Nathan's talking about well, and the other scene that I have in mind is the journalist who, the, the, the character name I've forgotten, unfortunately. Ben Urich. Thank you. Uh, but when he murders Ben Urich, uh, again, if he weren't so complex a villain, you would just say that he's a sadist or he is amoral or so on and so forth. But they develop it so that if you tell the story from the perspective of Wilson Fisk, he is doing that because Ben Urich threatens to make things worse than they would have been otherwise by exposing Wilson Fisk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the, the, there are certain stories. I mean, you know, Christian humanist listeners and Arthur Miller readers hopefully will remember uh, All My Sons. Um, he definitely reminds me of the characters from that play because he does truly monstrous evil things 
but it's because he has convinced himself that they are the right thing to do yeah and he is i mean i'm not i'm joking when i say this but i'm not joking he is um entirely more likable than donald trump right i mean he's like (laughs) an utterly monstrous person as you say and Uh yet he's compelling because he has a point (laughs) like there's a point to be made logically for for his actions um, and specifically when you see his sort of backstory and the way he was raised um, and, and the kind of um, somewhat, I guess, brutalization at the hands of his father, um, you have this um, uh, really interesting man child that gets developed. And when he start when he becomes violent, he takes on the persona of a giant baby. I mean, he pounds yeah. with his fists and, and he looks like a child who's like. Um, scared when, when he's doing uh, violence, right? Uh, and, and and it's to me, it's utterly compelling. And when he's not doing violence, he's sensitive. Um, he's he's polite. I mean, he's like everything you'd want a gentleman to be, right? Um, I mean, he's sort of like the the Renaissance man, right? But he's also got sort of a tremble in his demeanor when he's not being violent that shows you that he could erupt at any moment yeah uh and i mean and it's interesting because uh again listeners if you haven't turned it off and gone and watched the series yet it's your fault at this point <laughs> uh, but in the big fight scene at the end of season one between wilson fisk and the daredevil uh it's choreographed wonderfully because the daredevil beats fisk uh not because he's bigger, because he's certainly not, not even because he's faster, because the way that they film those scenes, he's, he's, I mean, Wilson Fisk is Shaquille O'Neal. He's yeah. 320 pounds, but he's also faster than anyone you've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, but because Daredevil uh, has control of the situation, whereas Fisk is just a raging blaze of energy. Yeah. So Daredevil, you know, manages to basically use that momentum to his advantage so i mean again i mean even at the level of fight choreography which we're going to talk about more a little bit later as well uh wilson fisk is you know just brilliantly crafted character now when we turn to Kilgrave, yeah uh first of all he's played by david tennant which means nothing to me because i haven't watched any of the doctor who series i haven't Um, I, I know some people were just freaking out that David Tennant was, you know, the bad guy. Uh, but he is a very different character because, again, you find out in his gradually revealed backstory that he is a product of completely amoral parents, um, you know, who, again, think that they're doing a good thing, but they have no sense of the limits of their ability to make the world better. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, describes Wilson Fisk as well. But. Kilgrave himself has no intention to make the world better. He is embittered by people who want to do that. And so he becomes uh, the rapist. Yeah. And he, his, his superpower is a kind of suggestion or mind control. And what you find out over the course of the season of Jessica Jones, there's only one so far, is that the people into whose minds he's in, he has intruded, uh, they actually form a support group where they have to talk about the experience of having their minds taken away from them. Now, on a much more literal sense as well, you find out, and they, they emphasize this over and over, that when Jessica Jones, the main character, was in his thrall, he also made her have sex. So, I mean, in a very straightforward sense, he's a rapist as well. But very much unlike Wilson Fisk, 
uh, Kilgrave is manipulative. Uh, he is always in control, except for the very last moment where he overestimates his ability. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's he's really terrifying in a very different way from Wilson Fisk. Both of them are some of the most terrifying villains you'll see in a superhero story, but for very, very different reasons. And they both, in their own way, are seem like all powerful, right? I mean, Wilson Fisk. Yeah. I mean, Wilson Fisk just owns so much of the of the institutions that we all sort of interact with. Yeah, he sort of secretly controls that, and so in, in, in that sense, he's sort of this all powerful god over the city. And <clears throat> excuse me, Kilgrave can tell you to do anything and you will do it. I mean, he, he's all, and you'll power. do it because you want to is what you find out. Yes. There's no sense that, you know, you are hating it as it's going on, but he actually manipulates your desires, uh, which in my mind is a lot more frightening, a concept of mind control than what you often see in sort of, you know, the, the star Trek, you know, must not go on, you know, sort yeah. of way. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and it, it, he, be, he's very much more of a, a devil character overtly uh-huh. than, than Wilson Fisk is. Right. Um, and so, and his, um, but yet not uncompelling. Like what I think what's so great about his performance is that he finds some way for you to actually find him interesting and actually uh, attractive as a, as a viewer uh, in some ways. You actually are drawn to him in some way. Um, right, right. That's what's so great about the performance. Right. Um, and then at the same time, he does things that, Again, if you compare it to, you know, a less well-written supervillain, I mean, it just makes them seem like chump change because at the end of the, towards the end of the season of Jessica Jones, uh, he actually mind controls her lover, Luke Cage. Yeah. And basically puts into his mouth a script to convince her that she's finally found long-lasting love, only to pull it out at the last minute and not only use this, you know, superhuman Hulk figure to beat her to death, but also to destroy her emotions all in one swoop. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, if, if you've ever read Goethe's Faust, I mean, you know, we're talking about an evil on par with Heinrich Faust here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he is he is a truly evil person, right? And, mm-hmm. and because, I mean, all of his motivations are entirely selfish, right? And, and so his yeah. motivation throughout that season of Jessica Jones is to get Jessica, Jessica Jones, for those of you, if you haven't seen it, um, we're ruining it all for you, but uh, you should see it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm assuming you have seen it. She is, for reasons unknown, um, become immune to him. Like for whatever reason, his power no longer works on her. Um, and and she, she has to discover that this is true. She operates most of the season season, um, with the assumption that he can still control her and she keeps running away from him or trying to kill him or something like this. Um, not knowing that she's immune to him. And there's like, I think a really interesting symbolic, (laughs) like a function there that we can talk about later maybe. But, Mm um, um, uh, given that, though, uh, his motivation then throughout the series is to get her to love him, right? Uh, and it's like mm-hmm. the one thing he can't make happen, that's his goal. And so he tries to do it in very sort of um, sweet ways, really. He buys her childhood house uh, and has it set up in just the way she would like or just the way that she remembered it from her childhood. And, and mm-hmm. he's trying to do things that he interprets a romantic comedy figure would sort of do, you know? And, and and he's trying to do it without using his powers, which is interesting, too. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's his only kind of 
selfless motivation, and even that is a selfish motivation. Right. <laughs> and so that's what. Well, that's and, and he's in totally the middle of the season two, he actually toys with the idea of becoming a vigilante alongside Jessica Jones only so that she will regard him as a partner so that he can eventually seduce her. Yeah. He does sort of a good deed at her behest um, and, and yeah. uses his power for good, as it were. Um, he stops like a, some sort of hostage situation by just mm-hmm. his power of suggestion. Um, and then he sort of like almost amused by the fact that, that that she's impressed that he can do that he's done a good thing right um and it's uh-huh. the the act of doing good has no actual moral effect on him well because her utter contempt and disgust for him wanes for just a moment and he realizes that you know it might be that doing something for another person might be the only thing to impress her now you know as, as it goes at that moment she springs one of her traps on him and you know at that point he just says forget it i'm just going to find someone who can amplify my powers until it overcomes her resistance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we've got the villains established. Those are sort of the nemeses in both seasons, um, uh-huh. both series. Um, and so, um, can we kind of shift over to the heroes now? And this is the context yeah. in which the heroes are sort of operating. Um, I didn't write this question down, but I assume you can you can go with it. But Daredevil himself is a uh, a lawyer from Hell's Kitchen. He's blind, and he he runs this law firm with his college buddy Foggy. Um, uh, uh-huh. That basically makes no money. They spend all their time doing the very high idealistic things that you know. The, the law can can do for people who are underprivileged they are trying to help the people who are powerless with their with their professional mm-hmm. work um there's a limit to that success so daredevil at night goes about the city using his powers to sort of supplement that good activity yes, yes. if you will right um you want to talk a little bit about daredevil as a hero sure and i'm, I'm going to go ahead and start bringing in the catholic angle here although we can certainly expand on it later One of the fascinating things about Daredevil and about Frank Castle is that you find out they both grew up Catholic boys. Mm. Uh, And so Daredevil's motivation is not some sort of um, sort of plain vanilla dedication to, you know, truth and goodness and so on and so forth. But you actually get some content to what he's doing. So the reason that he doesn't kill people is not because heroes don't do that in a general sense, although that's certainly true. Like Batman. Uh, But it's because... As a Catholic, he seems to have internalized a notion that in a just war, and he certainly considers himself as part of a war because his mentor, Stick, has told him he's fighting a war, uh, but in a just war, you only use force that is commensurate to the threat, uh, and you use the minimum possible force. So for Daredevil, that means that he doesn't kill people. And, you know, what's fascinating about that is that it is rooted in that just war tradition to a very real extent. For the same reason, uh, when other people have ideas to go after subsidiaries and people connected to the criminal ring, he refuses to do so, again, because that would be attacking a non-combatant, which, again, in Catholic just war theory, just isn't allowed. Uh, So, I mean, Daredevil... Certainly has real human psychology. Certainly is not just a, you know, cardboard cutout with, you know, your intro to theological ethics written on it. Uh, but as he goes along, uh, you know, if you compare him to the Avengers universe, you know, big trio, you know, they're, I guess, quartet. Ah, heck, why not make it a sextet? You know, the Hawkeye, Black Widow, Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America. I like all of those characters. I enjoy watching their movies. I'm going to go 
spend money to watch more of their movies. <laughs> but what I don't get from any of them is any kind of definite moral tradition that they are part of beyond yeah. Captain America saying, you know, there's only one God, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. He's he's definitely, I mean, unique in the cinematic universe, as it, as it were right now, at least uh-huh. um, uh, in his kind of religious devotion and how that religious devotion actually affects his um, actions and belief system. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and then when and then when he is captured by the Punisher in season two, it's fascinating because one of the first things he asks Frank Castle is, uh Frank Castle, you know, hears church bells and he says, that must be St. Matthew's. And he says, so did you grow up Catholic? And are, are you Catholic? And Frank Castle says, used to be. And he says, do you still go to Mass? So, I mean, he basically starts taking his confession there. Yeah. And, of course, Frank Castle is having none of it. And it's a wonderful scene because Frank Castle, you know, basically says, really? Yeah. <laughs> are, are we doing the Catholic thing here? Yeah. I think uh, that's but, the scene, actually, that inspired you to contact me about starting this, about doing this episode. I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, as soon as you great, watch that, you, you message me. Scene, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and shift over to the Punisher because when he comes in, um, what we get is someone who definitely has a moral code and again has a moral tradition. Uh, but it's the moral tradition of the vigilante, right? I mean, right. he is in a very different way from Wilson Fisk, the Ubermensch. You know, he has lost everything that is important to him, but he has an idea that there are sicknesses in the world, which is a very Nietzschean phrase to use. Yeah. Uh, and he just doesn't have any qualms at all about using guns, knives, and other deadly force uh, to eliminate that sickness and to restore health to the city. Yeah. And so when those two are on screen together and when they're in the story together, uh, what you get is a distinct plurality of ethics going on. Uh, again, in a way that really doesn't play out in the Avengers side of the Marvel Universe, um, which doesn't make that a bad side of the universe. It just means that this one is interesting in a very, very different way. Right. Yeah, no, and I think that, that juxtaposition really works well in the second season. I mean, and it, it takes the confessor role that Daredevil takes gets extended because um, Matt Murdock, the Daredevil's alter ego, is Frank Castle's lawyer <laughs> during the trial. Yes, right? yes. And so uh-huh. he, he has that sort of advocate role for him uh, like outside of the superhero realm as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you were talking about his sort of code of ethics. And, and The actor, I can't remember, I don't know the name of the actor who plays the Punisher, but to me it draws really heavily on Robert De Niro's Taxi Driver performance. And, oh yeah. And yeah. it's the same sort of um, I mean ethical code that they have I mean identifying the guilty and punishing them for their guilt right I mean he is sort of um, the hammer as you will <laughs> and so yeah yeah um, and, and another aspect of Daredevil's character that we didn't talk about his father was a sort of um, mob connected boxer basically yeah who was well, I mean, he was skilled and, and he actually had a, a somewhat promising career. He was probably never going to be Muhammad Ali or anything like that, but mm-hmm. um, but he was a, a more than good boxer and he ended up not throwing a fight that he was supposed to throw for the mob and then the mob had him killed for, um, for, for mm-hmm. doing this. And this is when Daredevil was a little boy. Daredevil ends up going, being sort of raised by this other blind 
superhero vigilante named Stick uh, who gets him involved in all these competing ethics uh, to his Catholic philosophy or his Catholic theology. Right. Because um, Matt Murdock also went to Catholic school. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so, but what's interesting is from a, this, from the age, from a young age, he has he's being trained in two different ethical systems and mm-hmm. as the man Matt Murdock he chooses the Catholic um, pacifist way as you, if you will um, well not pacifist it's not pacifist <laughs> yes. I mean pacifists don't beat up that many people in a night yeah yeah. I, I, I did not use the word pacifist correctly so yeah, yeah you don't need to respond with a comment about that I already acknowledge I used the wrong term of pacifism um, he's not an Anabaptist by any means right and so no. um, but he nonetheless he chooses sort of this um, he chooses God. I mean, when confronted with other ph- philosophical systems, he chooses the one of faith. And I think that that's a really interesting aspect of his character. And it really, I mean, has profound impacts on the plot of this story, of this, of these shows. So, um, um, so Jessica Jones um, is a bit of an odd superhero. Okay. And this show seems to engage with contemporary identity, identity politics with a lot more gusto than um, Daredevil does. Is this just a feminist enterprise or is there more to what's going on there? Is it just a feminist enterprise? No. Is it a feminist enterprise? Yes. Yes. So let me talk a little bit about some of the characters swirling around Jessica Jones. First of all, um, her contact uh, in the law firm whose name I've forgotten. I really did prep for this episode back when we were originally going <laughs> to record it, Danny. I promise. I understand. I, I'm, I'm just so... blanking here. Uh, but the law firm represents uh, a certain sort of Clinton-flavored feminism yeah. in the in the Marvel universe right uh, one of the partners uh, is basically getting a divorce from a long-term lesbian relationship uh, and she is doing so because she effect- she has found a younger more attractive partner mm-hmm. um, you know they represent really some reprehensible figures um, and it's largely because they can uh, they think that they can basically pull the levers of society and make things happen that you know in a fairly limited capitalist way is good um, and of course you know the horrifying thing about the end of Daredevil season 2 is that they hire Foggy which you know I, I was sitting there going no <laughs> <laughs> she's the devil <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, you've got Jessica Jones herself, who represents another facet of what I would call, you know, sort of a, a postmodern feminism, because her powers are such that she can basically take down any man on the show, with the possible exception of Luke Cage. Yeah. Uh, but that's a pretty big exception. So, in other words, if she gets into a fist fight with any man she's going to win and yet she lives in perpetual fear because the person who is her nemesis doesn't attack by physical assault but by the appropriation of the mind by appropriation of the disciplines and i mean there's definitely an anxiety going on there uh that even if women achieve this sort of external power be that physical power political power economic power whatever else there are going to be desires that they have uh that are still going to subvert them so it's almost a michelle foucault moment Mm. when you realize that you know the either most powerful or second most powerful character on the show uh can't trust her own desires to keep her free yeah then you get the radio host 
uh, who dedicates her life to making sure that she never is overcome physically again. But the first fight that she gets into, she loses because she gets into a fight with a hyped up super dude who's mind controlled by Kilgrave. Yeah. So it's a show about feminist anxiety more than it is any straightforward feminist cheerleading. And I think that makes it interesting because, I mean, those three characters, all three of them, you could say, are embodying and acting out certain strains within feminist thought. Uh, but in all three cases, the world turns out to be more powerful and more complicated than you might expect it to be. Um, and then, of course, I mean, what we mentioned earlier, the fact that Kilgrave is not the, you know, the powder keg that Wilson Fisk is, but he is the manipulative rapist supervillain, makes it, I mean, a, a feminist show, I mean, just by... By, by virtue of that I would love to I mean get Victoria Farmer and the, the rest of the Christian Feminist Podcast um, to dedicate a whole episode to the show um, because I th- I, there's so many levels of I mean this is not even a strict you know first versus second versus third wave feminism no no no, I, I, no, no, no. It, it's, it's really much more complex than that and and, uh-huh. and in a lot of ways what you're saying Kilgrave can represent um, sort of subtle patriarchal power right uh, I mean, and, yeah. and, and I think that because he makes women want to do what he wants them to do exactly right and and for whatever reason Jessica Jones is this transcendent figure in this universe mm-hmm. who um, overcomes this now she has her own I mean she's not like a good person um, and, and this is what's I think more interesting about this show as well she is not like a heroic person she actively tries to run from the title of hero and, and she doesn't mm-hmm. want want that sort of um and i think this is another um patriarchal idea that she's sort of running from in, in a lot of ways is the idea of heroism to be a hero is to be sort of uh at the top of some hierarchical pyramid and and i think that she subtly realizes that power is corrupting and, and she really actively runs and so she's actually kind of a nasty person in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in terms of her attitude towards other people um, she's not in any way um, the sort of um, uh visibly good person uh, that you know you would associate with Captain America for say uh, for example um, right right although it's interesting because when she thinks that Luke Cage actually might be a sustained lifelong partner to her. That side of her starts to open up only to shut down entirely in the season finale when it turns out that was all Kilgrave's plot as well. Yeah. So, I mean, in that sense, I mean, that, that this is a show, I mean, far more even than Daredevil, and Daredevil will rip your guts out, but Jessica Jones will rip your guts out six or seven times over the course of that season. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know... Uh, you know, it's not that she's a nasty person because she was, you know, inherently or genetically nasty, uh, but because she has been so damaged by Kilgrave. Yeah, and she was like, an, yeah, an abused person. And and there's also there's so many like subtle aspects of her character development that we haven't given justice to. She. Um, became a, an orphan because she was sort of acting bratty in the backseat of a car and contributed somehow, if I think if I remember right, to a car accident that killed her family. Is that yeah. remembering? And yep, so yep. also it's suggested that during that accident is when she gained these superpowers and there's there's some sort of conspiratorial. Or her hospital treatment after the accident. Yeah, yeah. There's some sort of... Because whatever the company was that was giving the super soldier drugs to yeah. the cop... 
also took care of her hospitalization. They've left all sorts of room to uh, develop. Oh, there's going to be a few, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but at any rate, so she already has this sort of inner um, uh, debate with herself about her goodness just because of her actions as a child, right? And then she gets adopted by this really conniving woman. Um, she's sort of friends with this girl who becomes the, the radio host that you were talking about earlier. Um, and, and she gets adopted by this person's um, uh, mother who is a really conniving. She pushes her daughter into being like a television star and, and she's just a really sort of um, uh, a terrible person, right? And so she has, she's been raised in a very damaged way even before she meets Kilgrave. Um, and, and I think that that's another aspect of her um character development that is worth talking about. She isn't nasty just because she's a bad person. She is someone who's been damaged uh, her entire life. Uh, and, and so mm-hmm. she's like, this is a show about trauma um, as much or more than it is about anything else and, and how to um, cope with trauma. And so I think, yeah, both. And so she's, um, operating in the same sort of universe as Daredevil. I mean, there's characters that Mm -hmm. step in and out of both shows, um, but she's got a completely different um, experience, and and the show does a great job of giving that experience its own room. And so, um, anything else about the heroes? Uh, I mean, we're going to talk about the side characters in a little bit, so I'll I'll hold off for right now. Yeah. Um, We've already talked a little bit about um, Daredevil and philosophy and theology, um, and I don't know that we need to sort of do more, unless there's more to say about that. But, um, well, we talked about Kingpin. I mean, are there... It seems to me that these shows do engage with philosophical and theological ideas in really profound ways. In what ways do the heroes do that? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, just to go back to Daredevil for a moment, I mean, we talked about why he doesn't kill people and why he actually has a good reason for not killing people. The other interesting thing is that, especially in season one, but we talked about how the roles kind of get reversed in season two, Daredevil is a person who is in relationship with a confessor, uh, which is so distinctively Christian and so distinctively Catholic uh, that you really have to note it because... um, when he talks to the priest, and I've, I've already forgotten the priest's name, unfortunately, um, what you get is, you know, a character who knows that he's a vigilante, who also knows that he's a lawyer, who actually has a view of his conflicting identities and his conflicting obligations and his conflicting problems, um, and who really gives him spiritual advice from a you know, as a Roman Catholic priest, right? So, you know, when M- Matt Murdock says, you know, um, I feel like I'm doing good in the world, but, you know, every time something bad happens, I feel guilty for it. You know, the priest doesn't give him any sort of therapeutic, you know, well, you shouldn't feel guilty because some things are just not in your control. Yeah. Uh, he says, well, if you have guilt, then God might be telling you you still need to do more. Yeah. <laughs> Like wow, it's, <laughs> it's like it's like there's actually a Catholic in this show. <laughs> yes, there is a hard edged uh, sort of uh, Catholic faith that, that, that just drives that show um, totally. Um, uh-huh. uh, now, Jessica Jones for me is much more grounded, like I said, in like political thought and, and political cultural you know studies and that sort of thing. And so, are there ways in which it kind of addresses theological questions as well? Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that Jessica Jones helps us to look at and, you know, you really it doesn't let us turn away from it is that 
original sin and total depravity really take on concrete shapes in different people's lives. Uh, so in other words, it's not just an abstract notion that Jessica Jones is a sinner and therefore she's nasty to people. Yeah. But there's a definite narrative out of which her nastiness emerges. Uh, and likewise, you know, with Kilgrave, uh, it's not just that he is the devil because one day he decided to be the devil, uh, but because he saw a sort of enlightenment scientific idealism that mm. manifested in genetic manipulation and also experimentation on children. And his response to that is not to be a better scientist or be a better um, enlightenment person, but to reject the whole, the whole thing and to basically do as he wills because there really is no goodness. Uh, so I, I know you asked me about the heroes and I turned back to Kilgrave. Well, I mean, uh, no, th- I think that, that works actually. Uh, <laughs> I, I, but, but Jessica Jones in that respect, you know, really, uh, if you want to talk about another thing that separates her from a lot of heroes, she's not the sort of, technocratic let's make the world better character that tony stark is right she's not the outside interloper that thor is you know let's help the puny humans to live and not kill each other right and she's certainly not you know captain america right you know who has such a profound sense of duty that even when he is on the run from the federal government he still acts like captain america right no exactly and and i think that when you were what you were describing about kilgrave and how his um kind of negative philosophy i mean his his whatever his evil um comes out of a um, an observation that these kind of progressive uh enlightenment ideas of of science and reason fail right and actually uh-huh. created him um and that makes him believe sort of in nothing um and and i think jessica jones for whatever reason, um, tries to believe in nothing, right? I think she has the same yeah. sort of um, background, right, that she could lead her to that same conclusion. But for whatever reason, she's thrown into community. And I think that even with that lawyer who you, you think who uh, is sort of is played by Carrie Ann Moss, I can't remember her name. Either, right, Hogarth. I actually looked it up that's while right. we were talking. That's right. <laughs> um, um, like even with her, I mean, there is a community that she's involved in that keeps her sort of on the cusp of hope at least right and, and okay. so i think that for whatever reason she's avoided kilgrave's level of depravity um uh even though she really has every bit as much reason to go down that path in terms of mm-hmm. her acknowledgement that everything that the world said is good is really not right and it's interesting because you know if you think of kilgrave as sort of you know the diametric opposite of a captain america figure in in some ways jessica jones is the opposite of tony stark because tony stark i think genuinely wants to do what is good but his own ego leads him into courses of action that ultimately do more damage than they do good yeah whereas jessica jones is completely convinced that she is disposable trash but there is something in the story that keeps leading her to do good things in spite of that damage that's been done to her. Right. There's um, a, a kind of a debt that she feels. The story begins with someone coming to her for help, and the the person that she was supposed to help ends up falling into Kilgrave's grasp. And so she feels sort of like a personal responsibility for another human. And that's what right. kind of gets her involved in... Um, 
her sort of redemption narrative as, as it were I'm really interested and then meeting Luke Cage along the way there is this sort of like human connection between those two sort of um, paradoxically broken people. I mean, they both are broken in their own ways, even though they're sort of, un- he's literally unbreakable, right? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> physically, but but emotionally not so. And and so them meeting each other, I think, is, I mean, you have the much more sort of human story where superpowers aren't the solution, but it's sort of human relationship that is. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that's one of the really beautiful things about that. And of course, well, I won't, there are like, complications to Jessica Jones and Luke Cage's relationship that um, we can talk about as it turns out Kilgrave had Jessica Jones murder kill, kill, uh, Luke Cage's wife right and, and so she has this yeah. sort of guilt in that really she brings to that relationship even though she not wasn't really a part of it but yeah right and also even though she, he is the only human being she really has any chance of connecting with yeah I mean, you know, to go back to that manipulation story, part of what draws her in is that he forgives her, or yeah. seems to. Yeah. Uh, but again, even that turns out to be a lie. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and so that that's Kilgrave's depravity, though, right? Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, so there's a... And the ending of that season is a little... Uh, I... I that one's open ended to me the the ethics of what she does to end that season um and uh-huh. and, and to me i uh i don't have a clear answer was whether that was good or bad to, um for her to do um or right or wrong and so all of that is that that ends on a much more sort of open question than daredevil yeah, daredevil season 1 ends on this really tidy note right and jessica jones season 1 ends on this really messy note and, and i think that mm-hmm. that's one clear difference between the two series series right although it's not entirely tidy because once you get into season two you realize that had matt murdoch killed wilson fisk a lot of what the punisher ends up doing never would have happened <laughs> this is true but yeah so, i mean i yeah i mean don't make daredevil tidier than it is i mean he remains a consistent catholic but that's not a tidy thing to be no no i'm just saying season one's narrative ended in a very tidy way if there was okay, never, okay, if, okay. if there was never a season two that would have never come into play right <laughs> all right um, all right but yeah but th- that's a great segue into the next question i have though is the supporting characters in both shows uh-huh. i think are just fabulous uh, on like on every level how do they work in this show and what do they contribute to um, both shows well I want to start off with uh, one of my favorite side characters who actually appears in both series let's uh, call her the nurse shall we uh, but when she enters into Daredevil's story I mean she is without a doubt one of the strongest characters in either series even though she doesn't have any superpowers and even though she never engages in physical combat uh, she is a character who in the face of crisis always comes through both for Matt Murdock and for Frank Castle uh, and for that matter for Luke Cage and one of the fascinating things is she is the only person one of only two people let me correct that who manages to violate Luke Cage if you will yeah Uh, and actually Mm. there's three now that I say that one of them is Kilgrave because he gets inside his mind right one of them is Jessica Jones because she shoots him in the head and gives him a giant concussion right but then he can't get medical treatment for it because his skin is impenetrable. Right. So this nurse ends up being the only one who can heal him because she has the wherewithal and the steady hand to, and listeners, if you have a 
queasy stomach mute for the next 15 seconds. And don't watch either of these shows. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> but she drives a needle into his eye socket because that's not his skin, and therefore she can actually get the medical treatment to him that he needs. She's the only character who has the wherewithal to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, what you get with both of these characters is or with this character pardon me uh is claire temple there we go i finally found it sorry i was walking around trying to find that rosario dawson plays her i think right yes yes uh but she is a character who is truly strong without being super powered on the other side of things uh luke cage's character is someone who has superpowers beyond any of the other characters in either series yeah uh with the possible exception of Kilgrave, but because he is he has withdrawn so much into himself after the death of his wife um he doesn't end up doing a whole lot of super vigilante kind of things he pretty much just beats up people who get into fights in his bar yeah uh and then has you know super sex with jessica jones which <laughs> actually not the first series to do that they actually had a a a scene like that in Smallville, which was the most awkward thing in a very awkward show. <laughs> uh, but um, so again, I mean, if, if you think about these, you know, pairs. Uh, on one hand, no superpowers, but great strength. On the other hand, great superpowers, but almost no strength. That's really the the appeal of Claire Dawson. Yeah. Another character is Foggy Nelson, who yeah. might be my favorite side character in either series. Yeah. Um, who again? is one of those characters who wants to think of himself as a Machiavellian cutthroat. Yeah. But every time he has a chance to do something really despicable, he's incapable of doing it. Right. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I taught uh, Aristotle's ethics this summer in a philosophy class. So, I mean, he is the encratic person. Uh, he keeps doing what is right, even though he hates himself for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and frankly, I, you know, uh, because I find myself in that position so often, uh, I really kind of resonated with that. I, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I find myself doing something and rationally, I know I probably should have done it, but then I think, you know what I could have gained if I hadn't. <laughs> uh, so, I, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Captain America, I'm not uh, team foggy, <laughs> which, which side characters do you like, Danny? Well, I like Karen. Um, they're so Karen is sort of the, uh, their first case, I think, um, if I remember yes. right. And, and she ends up working for them as the secretary. They basically um, save her from the kingpin uh, through kind of legal means unbeknownst to them that that's what they've done and um and and she ends up working for them as sort of their secretary and really kind of equal partner in the firm um as as the series goes on and i really think she's interesting she's hiding some sort of um backstory that i don't believe we still have gotten all the details of uh by the second season um but, but um so she's got some sort of failure in her past that she's sort of running from and um, she kills sort of in self-defense um, and is bearing the weight of that. I mean, she kills a bad guy in self-defense, right? And bears the weight of that in such a like visible, profound way that um, like I really am compelled by her as a character. I think it's the uh, the actress. She was in True Blood. She played like a, a vampire recruit of uh, Bill, I think. If I, <laughs> I watched the first season of True Blood, I think that's the only thing I've seen. And I think it's the same actress that played, uh, that played Karen. Um, but she... I I think is a really um, important 
um, aspect of that law office. Because I mean, she's a, a woman, first of all, so she brings... Um, a, you know, a feminine perspective to all of their decision making, right? And she's allowed quite a bit of like power within the firm. Um, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the Matt and Foggy both sort of defer to her quite a bit, and and and, and I, I just think that she's an essential character to that show. Um, and so she's one from Daredevil. I actually, I really think that. Um, Jessica Jones's um, talk show host friend, uh, who I cannot remember the name of. It's been uh, several months since I've seen these shows now. Um, the, right. Trish Walker. That's right. Uh, I think she's very interesting, too, because she is a former child celebrity. So she's sort of coming mm-hmm. from the opposite. I mean, she comes from privilege, if you will. Right. But that privilege was bought at a very heavy kind of personal price for her own identity. Mm-hmm. Right. And so she's become this kind of famous city talk show host on a radio show and um and i feel like um what she brings is this sort of um she wants to sort of get in the fray and and sort of make things right right and so she stands Mm -hmm. as like an interesting counterweight to jessica jones and that she sort of pushes her into situations that jessica jones should be in (laughs) frankly and that she should not (laughs) and so i think that i think that she's an essential character uh for what she brings to the to the to the show as well um um and of course i mean i think that the punisher is a uh ancillary character is a supporting character in season two i mean he's a, a vital one but that sort of negative against um daredevil's positive is is a really and they you they did it extremely well they they pulled that character into the series and extremely um, compelling and and it doesn't like overwhelm the screen at all uh, and and I think right. I think that it's an essential part of um, making it compelling drama. Well, like I said, the the two best scenes in any of these three series for my money are when Frank Castle has Matt Murdock captured, and then later on when. Matt Murdock is waiting for the police to pick up Frank Castle because in both of those it really is a relationship where Matt Murdock is trying with everything he has to take the confession of Frank Castle but Frank Castle although he gets right up to the edge when he's about to be captured to the police you know he tells his story he explains why he kills he does all of these things basically I mean when Frank Castle, you know, gets to jail during his trial, the Kingpin gets to him. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, again, that that's where I, I want to say that, you know, Daredevil doesn't leave anything tidy because Frank Castle's soul might have been saved had Kingpin been dead. Right. <laughs> it's true. Although, yeah, I mean, Frank and, Castle, and I say that as a wannabe Anabaptist, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but Frank Castle is such a, I mean, he is insane. I mean, he is not... Uh, you can't use rational like criteria to judge his actions because he is literally insane. I mean, uh, in the comics as well. I mean, he he's in, like, in the comics, I'll agree with you. I think the Netflix Frank Castle really was on the verge of salvation. Uh, I, and and, and, he, and he, the the reason why I want to insist on that, and I mean, you can disagree with me. You've been wrong before, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> Is that, I mean, I think that, you know, these two series, I mean, what they do better than anything else in the Marvel Universe is these rip your guts out moments. Yeah. And I think that really is a moment where Frank Castle 
really confesses to Matt Murdock there in the cemetery. Yeah. Which, I mean, dear heaven, symbolism. Yeah. yeah. You know, club you over the head with it. Uh, and then he's in jail. You know, he is convinced that, you know, he's done wrong. But then Kingpin gets to him and immediately he's back into revenge mode. Yeah. Yeah. And for both the goods purpose and for a kingpin's purpose and that's what's so subversive about the kingpin is that his and his interests do coincide with the public goods at certain places right and, and so yeah yeah his nefarious interests actually uh they share some territory with the public goods yeah he wants well. to be the good gangster that doesn't kill as many people as the bad gangsters exactly right i mean he's the lesser of two <laughs> evils in the yeah. current parlance of our election season that's, right that, that, that's what his resume says at the top <laughs> Lesser of two evils, exactly. <laughs> Wilson and Fisk, lesser um, of two evils. And we haven't talked about Electra yet, uh, and, and I think that this is sort of a, a she's sort of a superhero ninja warrior. Um, on par with Daredevil and so she's sort of a mm-hmm. former love interest who as it turns out was engineered to be a love interest by Stick in order to bring Daredevil yeah. to sort of the away from the the Catholic philosophy or theology into his sort of Nietzschean theology or philosophy <laughs> excuse me yeah yeah <laughs> um, and, and so well uh, although I, I think that Stick I, I, I'm going to argue that he's more of a Taoist than he is a Nietzschean, mm. simply because I mean he views himself simply as an instrument of the war. That's true. It's not his own will that's making things happen. It's the war is going on, and someone has to fight it. And his name and is because he has the ability to do so. Yeah, and his name is Stick. So. <laughs> his name is Stick, right? Yeah. And he he is named after an instrument of war, right? And so yeah, um, I think that's actually that's very compelling. Um, but Electra is this also kind of she discovers throughout the course of her character. Arc, um, which is about halfway through the second season, I think. We yeah. sorry to see her come in, um, and she sort of discovers her her nature, if you will, right? And, and mm-hmm. so she has to battle the sort of good and evil within herself and try and make that same decision that Daredevil has made. Can she sort of make the ethical decisions that Daredevil has made, um, or is she sort of fated to be? on the other end of that um, stick, as it were. (laughs) Right, right. Um, right. And And, and you find out that she is, you know, and Star Wars Episode One is unfortunate in so many ways, (laughs) but one of the ways is that any time you hear that someone is a fulfillment of prophecy, you think of Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. Uh, But, (laughs) you know, you find out that she is the center of a prophecy that, you know, she will be an instrument that destroys the world. Yeah. And so, I mean, she's contending with that too, a sense of destiny that again, Matt Murdock becomes interesting because he brings forth a very Catholic notion of free will, right? Yes, you are depraved. Yes, you are inherently evil. Yes, you can choose to do good because there is grace in the world. Yeah. And there's no reason why you should be able to do good. That's why they call it grace. It's gratuitous. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. He really is the, the the priest of the Marvel Universe, right, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so uh, this episode is, we talked it like seven, I think I called it seven levels of Hell's Kitchen or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, and it's actually interesting because the way we talk about all of these characters, the supporting cast as well as the main characters, is it seems more like purgatory to me. Um, this is uh-huh. not necessarily hell. They are more sort of in a place where they are able to or not um, work their way through their issues. Am I am I wrong about this? 
Uh, only insofar as in Dante's version of Purgatory, which of course is the best, uh, <laughs> those who are in Purgatory are already guaranteed their salvation. Ah. And I think that there's an element of risk in all of these characters, including Matt Murdock, uh, that doesn't really belong in Purgatory. It really does belong on Earth. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I mean, the fact, there's so much symbolism with the name Hell's Kitchen. I mean, it's a real, oh, yeah. it's a real place, right? But uh-huh. it speaks to so many of, the, I mean, we have this Mephistopheles kind of character and, and Kilgrave enter into Hell's Kitchen uh, mm-hmm. and, and sort of operate. Daredevil is the guy who's sort of the good yeah. guy of, Her- of Hell's Kitchen. There's so much symbolism working on here and uh, working out its way, working its way out through the show. Um, and I think that... Um, there is a kind of purgatory, at least as well, um, if not. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. If not a, a by and, and I would say definitely Matt Murdock's character arc is purgatorial. Yeah. Uh, because when he talks with Frank Castle, he has that moment of doubt when he says, "Maybe just this one time, I need to be a killer because." if these people stay on the street, more harm is going to come than good. Yeah. And it's interesting because in that moment, the roles flip and Frank Castle says, no, you're not allowed to be me for one day and then go back. Once you've gone where I am, you stay there. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much like dense moral material in these these, shows that make it really fascinating. Um, well, the last thing I want to talk about, um, we're a little over my hour promise, but we'll be not too bad. Um, uh, um, I want to talk about the action sequences, specifically in Daredevil. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're actually um, sublime. Uh, what makes them so special? In season one of Daredevil, you get fight scenes that really deviate from the fight choreography of the Avengers universe in that people get back up. Yeah. And that is mm. such a small difference, but when you see it on screen, it's so significant because Matt Murdock isn't hitting people so hard that they go down and they stay down, but they have the will to get back up and they have the hatred to come back after him. Mm. Uh, now, there is one exception to this, of course, and it's actually a scene in comic relief in Iron Man 2 when uh, Tony Stark's bodyguard and the Black Widow are facing a group of corporate guards and he takes about a two minute fist fight to take his guy down while black widow takes down 17 of her <laughs> counterparts. And of course, every time she hits every time, even though she's, you know, maybe 130 pounds holding a brick, yeah. uh, you know, they go down and they don't get back up. Whereas this, you know, big professional wrestler looking dude, uh, takes, you know, two full minutes to win his fight. Yeah. In daredevil, People get up because Matt Murdock is not a giant, right? Uh, Wilson Fisk is, to be sure. Uh, But Matt Murdock has to keep hitting them. And for that reason, he has to prolong his fight scenes to a greater extent than you would expect, given the number of enemies. Yeah. And so it really becomes a moment where you are watching him, not only in a moment of prowess, but also in a moment of courage and of endurance uh as he has to you know keep confronting the possibility that they're going to come back at him right and also i mean notably he actually gets bloody knuckles from fighting which no one else in the marvel universe to my knowledge does yeah he's always bruised i mean every time you see matt murdoch as the series goes on especially i mean every time you see the lawyer matt murdoch he's carrying the scars of daredevil um what daredevil did the night before uh and uh, the bruises at least and so yeah there's, there's that's absolutely true and that actually fits also with the kind of narrative of 
the narrative arc of this show, Kingpin isn't going down um, in one punch, right? Kingpin right. Um, comes up in another form, right? <laughs> and so, and, and and so it's a, a it's a persistent fight uh, for the good. It isn't sort of like. There's no happily ever after in this part of the Marvel Universe. Right, right. Uh, right. And in fact, we didn't even mention that the whole exigence of this part of the Marvel Universe is the aftermath of the final battle in the Avengers. There, there's right, all these sort right. of um, subtle um, comments about, well, what those guys did in costumes. You know, like, and, and mm-hmm. all, there's like a clear sense that the, the controversy in Hell's Kitchen is because of the destruction of New York um, that right. took place in the Avengers. And they're actually picking themselves up from it. Right, so Thor created the kingpin. Yeah, you can say that in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, now, what, what's fascinating, though, is that in season two, uh, they don't leave that alone. Because in a very real sense, the hallway fights in season one get a horrifying mirror in the cell block fights in season two. Yeah. Except it's not the Daredevil anymore, it's the Punisher. Yeah. When he hits them, they do stay down because he has cut their throats. Yes. <laughs> And it is horrifying because, first of all, you see their blood spraying everywhere. Uh, Like I said, you know, short of a Mel Gibson Jesus movie, you're not going to see this much on-screen blood, uh, you know, in a lot of places in the movies. But when you see Frank Castle acting out this fight that is a deliberate, I have to think, mirror image of the hallway fight. Absolutely. Uh, it happens, and and Danny, help me out with this. Is it before or after Daredevil's captured on the rooftop? I think it's after because Frank Castle's in prison. That's yeah. right. But it's after Frank Castle has said, you know, the reason that I'm doing this city good and you're actually doing harm is because when you hit them, they get back up. When I hit them, they stay down. And that literally comes to fruition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to watch it because, I mean, he does leave a pile of dead bodies. Yeah. Uh, these are not people who are going to repent of their ways. They're not even people who are going to, in a more latent sense, lose their ability to do work for the criminal bosses and therefore leave that life of crime. But these are people who are dead. I mean, he, you know... He, it, it, we're in Hell's Kitchen, so I mean, he sends them to hell. Yeah, yeah, and the it's at the end of the, I believe the second episode of Daredevil of the first season that there's the the really I mean. Um, iconic hallway scene that you're talking about where he's yeah. fighting his way through all these like Russian gangsters to save a child who's being held captive I think at the end of this hallway uh-huh. and, uh, and and it's like it's actually it's not just like thrilling action right it's actually um, emotionally moving to watch him battle his way through people who are getting up and having and knocking him down and he has to get up and battle yeah. his way through this hallway of really bad guys right um, and, mm-hmm. and he walks out you know this broken person carrying this child from this hallway um, for one thing um, on one level the the fact that they get back up is another way that grounds this series in our reality in ways that the Marvel cinematic universe doesn't necessarily right right, um, right. It, it, this is much less mythological and much more realistic but in another way that really speaks to the kind of profound um uh dedication and the the sort of um uh moral commitment that he has to his enterprise uh and that that if you're gonna watch, if you just want to watch the last 10 minutes of season of episode two of season one you'll be hooked on the show. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. an utterly um, compelling moment in, the, in, the, in, I think, television history. Right. And then the other great moment is Daredevil's fight with Nobu, the Yakuza j- gangster. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, um, 
and the reason that it's compelling is because this really is a, a supernaturally enhanced fighter we find out later that Matt Murdock has to combat with just his ability, his endurance, and his will. Yeah. And he gets so badly injured in this fight that Claire has to take not days but weeks to bring him back to health after it happens. Yeah. But again, it is a compelling scene because unlike a lot of these sorts of things where the bullets come in and you dodge them or they swing the sword and you duck a good six inches under it, he keeps getting cut. Yeah. And he bleeds. And as it goes on, there's no moment in there where you're not wondering, is he going to drop from this shot? Right. And, you know, the the heroic thing is not that, you know, he simply overwhelms them uh, by being a better fighter, but that his will lasts longer than the ninja's does, and that eventually he doesn't even kill him, but the ninja, because of, you know, some, frankly, deus ex machina action, uh, ends up, you know, igniting himself and, you know, seemingly dying, although we find out that Nobu is not done with us in season two, but I... I still don't know what the heck's going on in that plot line, so I'm hoping that there's either a movie or a season three, just so I know what the heck Nobu is. We got these zombie ninja things going on. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really it's really interesting. Yeah, but um, I, you call that Deus Ex Machina, and I think that's interesting because I was just thinking that maybe other than that, like I'll, maybe if I grant you that, like uh-huh. Matt Murdock is doing God's will, right? I mean, he's doing his best to serve God in, in his yeah. in his enterprise, and yet most of the time, um, if maybe with that exception, there doesn't seem to be any sort of divine intervention <laughs> in uh, in his in his battles. Like all the help he gets are from Foggy and from Night Nurse and from Karen and you know right. his his human friends, right? His people, uh-huh. uh, and so I feel like and from Stick and from Stick, right? Yeah, and from Electra, right? And so. So all the community is where the help is coming from. There is no sort of um, divine intervention necessarily. It, maybe with the exception of that 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 fire. But um, I think right. that's one of the also. Uh, there's a theological challenge right there um, as mm-hmm. well. And taking it back to Jessica Jones now, like her battles, like. Um, are much less choreographed. I mean, hers are, I mean, she's super strong. If she punches somebody, they fly across the room and out of shot, right? <laughs> we don't right. see them anymore. Well, right? With the exception of when Will gets the super soldier drugs in him, yes. he almost beats her. Yeah. And then, of course, when she has to fight Luke Cage, I mean, that that is either an even fight or one that she's going to lose. But for the most part, her battles are sort of internal. Like, her battles are yeah. emotional and um, battles of will. And and, mm-hmm. and and so they don't choreograph necessarily the way that they the, the fight scenes choreograph in Daredevil. And so if you want to sort of find a... Um, uh, another point of kind of distinction between these two series is I, Daredevil seems to be much more externally um, fought battle, whereas Jessica Jones is a much more internally fought battle uh, um, for mm. the most part. Although Daredevil does wrestle with theological um, uh, concerns, and Jessica Jones does have physical fights. I mean, but the the vast right. kind of uh, movement of those shows tend to kind of fall down in those two camps. Right, and we should also note that towards the end of season two, I mean, Daredevil, um, in the pursuit of you know what you're calling you know his sense of God's work, really does alienate all of the people that are around him. Yeah, you know, there's a sense in season two that he um, 
has a shot at something resembling happiness. Uh, but eventually he ends up, I think, going with Stick and saying, you know, there's a war that's going on. It is mine to fight this war, and therefore I'm going to fight it, even if it means that Foggy and, oh, what's her name, Karen, yeah. uh, end up being out of the picture. Yeah, it's true. I, like I said, this is, season two particularly does not end on, on a very neat note, right? Uh, and there's, right. there's a lot more to come. And in fact, I, I my understanding is there's a new character, um, Iron Fist, that's being introduced into this Netflix world. Um, yes. Luke Cage is getting his own show. Jessica Jones has mm-hmm. season two. The idea being that these shows will all meet in a new series called the defenders yes which was also a comic book series yeah and so this will they will kind of team up and right now there's very little interaction between the superheroes it's kind of uh uh strange in fact that they could just not bump into each other on the street when you think about with the right although they do talk about each other yeah they do actually yeah um but yeah so there is like a a big kind of plan for this as there is on the marvel cinematic universe but the television universe is like i said in a much it's in the same metaphysical space but it occupies a much more recognizable earth than than yeah it's much more local yeah yeah it's much more local um and so um anything else you want to add nathan Oh, about the side characters or just in uh, general? Anything about the show. Anything. All right. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, I, I think that, you know, one angle of these shows that, honestly, I'm still wrestling with uh, is, I guess, the economic side of it. Because, you know, part of what Kingpin is doing is he is building up a real estate empire as well as a commercial as well as a criminal empire pardon yeah. me in hell's kitchen and likewise you know hogarth's law firm is definitely if not a force for evil which i think it is certainly a force for consumption yeah right so i mean it, it's definitely a a subtly played side of the universe uh but it's definitely there yeah I think that's really interesting, and I it would be really cool if they explored that. Um, I mean, I, you were, I think that Hogarth and Kingpin are kind of opposite sides of the same coin on, on many ways. Uh, yeah, Hogarth's firm, at least. Um, I, right. I'm not sure I would classify her as a villain, but um, but yeah, I think that that's really interesting, and maybe we need sort of a. Uh, uh, a she, does, she does set freaking Kilgrave free. Well, that's true, but. <laughs> <laughs> And she does so on the promise that he might use her, his mind control to help her law firm. Well, no, to get her a divorce, wasn't it? Uh, was he going to convince well, yeah, Oh, yeah, that's right. That's, oh, my gosh. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, so how is she not a villain? Okay. Well, she does bad things, but she's not. So, so that she can expedite her running away with her younger mistress. It's, uh, it's Clinton-esque. You're right. Call someone a villain. <laughs> it's Clinton-esque. You're right. Um, that's a really good point, actually. Well, and, and so there is this sort of uh, economic critique going on uh, subtly mm-hmm. in this in this show. I mean, these these characters are operating in a uh, an economic context, as it were, and and there are sort of um, I you could call them neoliberal philosophies of, of economics that are sort of driving the drama uh, under the scenes here. And I wonder if the shows will uh, eventually um, uh, address that. That's that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that yet. Thank you, mm-hmm. um, and thank you for this idea, Nathan. And thank you for the time yeah. and, and and the great conversation this was so much fun for me um 
you're always welcome uh, on this show and uh, anytime you have an idea that you just want to throw out there throw it by me and I'm I'm more than happy to accommodate you're awesome Um, if you uh, as a listener have any ideas for the show and you would like us to uh, uh, tackle them we have quite a busy summer um, stacked up here of things to record and get in the can Um, but uh, we always have time after the summer so if you have any uh, thing that you'd like us to follow up on or um, address anew um, be Feel free to contact the show. Um, the iTunes thing, Nathan, you're the be- you're the king of the iTunes pitch. Do you want to? <laughs> well, listeners, uh, if you are enjoying the show, please go to iTunes, leave us a five star review. That's how most people get their podcasts, and therefore, that's how most people will find out about the show that aren't already subscribed. That's awesome. I always blow the beginning and the end. I have to script the stuff out, <laughs> or I'll, I'll, I'll mess it up. So, um, Nathan Gilmore, thank you so much. Have a great summer, and I hope to talk to you soon. Right on. You want me to do an outro? Yeah, go ahead. Since you forgot that. Go ahead. Sectarian Review is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Danny Anderson. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at ChristianHumanist.org at sectarian review podcast at dot weebly. no 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 dot weebly.com son of a gun uh we are glad to hear from you on all of those cases and so in behalf of danny anderson this is nathan gilmore saying have a great week my hero <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome nathan thanks so much right. man i had a good. lot of fun <laughs>